0: Well, thanks for being here as we launch a new series, Uncovering the Historical Jesus. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Before we do that, just want to give you some updates on some of the things that are happening. Of course, our building is coming along, and uh, we're, we're desperately trying to figure out if we're going to make our deadline for a big event we have called Sore Dunk that's going to be here uh, in uh, March 13th, I think. And so that's, if that doesn't happen, because we're coming right down to the wire... Uh, then our plan b is that maybe we do sore dunk right here we're not sure if we have enough room for that we'll have a plan c but we'll figure it out but uh, exciting things giving us much needed room for our teens which also which also then makes more room for our children's ministry and adult ministry so just more elbow room just what we need is our god continues to bless and grace continues to grow and then as you heard Uh, during our video that uh, we have a team going to Thailand. They're going to visit our two orphanages there. And I I think that's so important for them. And I think it's good for us. But for them, they realize those kids, uh, over 50 kids, realize that all their support comes from one church, Grace Community Church in a place called Fremont, Ohio. And they depend on that. And then not only that, but the staff. And so we try to get there and just refresh those connections. I think it builds security into their lives. Of course, we've been doing it for years and we, can, we will continue. But uh, basically, just regarding what's happening in our ministry, if you, if you give or, or you serve here at Grace, I just want to say thanks. Thanks for making our ministry possible. Thanks for partnering with us. Well, uncovering the historical Jesus. Very interesting. Just a couple of days ago... I I was uh, talking to a a young man through um, social media, and he was kind of challenging me, and I talked to him before, but he was challenging me now on something different that I don't don't remember us ever discussing before, and I don't know if maybe he got one of the flyers in the mail or what prompted it, but he was basically making the argument, or or referring me to somebody that was making an argument that Jesus never existed. This is kind of new. Uh, the whole thing, some people saying, no, he- no serious historian, whether they're Christian or not, denies the existence of a man named Jesus of Nazareth in the first century. I mean, it's just a given. And as I was trying to interact with him, he said, well, you think that because you're a Christian? I'm, no, I think that because of history. I mean, I'm not a Muslim, but I recognize that in the sixth century, there was a man named Muhammad. ...who conquered some cities and began that religion. I mean, I'm not denying that he ever existed. Nobody... Den- Jesus Christ is the most famous human being in all of history. All of, of world history. And, uh, and, and you just have to know that. And we can we have evidence of Jesus all around us. As a matter of fact, the evidence for the life of Christ is so interwoven into our culture... I don't think you could go uh, hardly, for example, this building or the way cities are named or places are named. I mean, the fact that uh, we value unwanted children pretty much in our world, that we have hospitals, education, science, anti-slavery, all these were movements that were begun primarily by Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. The impact is phenomenal. You can't even take it away. If you had a magnet and can pull out everything Christian out of the world, you wonder what would be left. I mean, it's huge. And you just have to know that. No, no historian denies the reality of Christ's existence. The question was, and what was, is very much debated, is exactly who Jesus was. Now, you can argue that, and that makes sense. Uh, who Jesus was, and, and that's exactly what this series is all about. And uh, Jesus Christ has impacted more cultures around the world than anyone else. He's brought more changes to culture than anyone else. We see his impact all around. For example, the calendar. When Jesus began his public ministry, Luke very carefully records when that was according to the Roman calendar of the day. And the way he says it in Luke 3.1 is he says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. I mean, he's very specific. And he goes, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee, he goes, he's very specific. Do you realize that, and that's just the way they did time then. Do you realize now we can't glance at a calendar, we can't date a check without somehow realizing that this man, Jesus Christ, has in some way, somehow divided human history to the point that our calendars are based on his life. That's that's what I'm talking about with impact. You just can't get away away from it. A Yale historian named uh, Yaroslav Pelikan says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of the Western culture for almost 20 centuries. That's huge. You know, this is from Yale. This is not a a bastion of Christian conservative. You know what? This, this is just what people just acknowledge to be reality. So how do we uncover the historical Jesus? And why do we need to do that? Well, there's a lot of confusion. Not that Jesus existed. But there's a lot of confusion about who he is. And the reason there's a lot of confusion about that is because, I think mainly, is because of who he claimed to be. And because of that... A phenomenon kind of happens where in our culture it's almost like uh, for a lot of people we've created a a cultural Jesus that matches kind of what we think Jesus should be like. Or to put it on a more personal, I think this really happens more often personal, we as human beings have this tendency to create in our mind a Jesus that we're comfortable with. But basically, this is a made-up Jesus. It's a Jesus that that would do things the way we would do things if we were Jesus. And and there's kind of some good and bad with that. The, The good news is, a Jesus that you make up in your own mind will probably never offend you. Right? The bad news is, A Jesus that you make up in your own mind is not real. And he cannot help you. He cannot save you. He cannot change your life. So what do we need to dig into here? Well, um, the reason that we need to do that, I think, is what, what Tozer said. Here's a famous theologian. He says, what comes into a person's mind when they think of God is the most important thing about them. So it's important for us to look at the question and here's the question the most important question is who is the real or the historical Jesus and the reason that question so important is because this most famous person in human history happened to claim to be God and so now it's very important for us to figure out who he is, and, and figure out for ourselves whether we think that claim is valid or not. Now, in order to do that, we need to use the Bible. And now, I know some people would push back on that a little bit and say, okay, now we're getting churchy. But the And here, here's why the Bible. The Bible, and I'm not saying this as a believer, I'm saying this as a historian. The Bible is the best source of... Um, information on Jesus that we have so this is where we find out about Jesus now I know some people will push back and they'll say well hold it Kevin you know yeah, have the Bible well that that's all church stuff no here's what I'm saying the Bible is the best authenticated piece of ancient literature in the world today so for people that want to... If, you, if your tendency is to kind of like... Well, I'm not going to use the Bible... Because I don't think it's authentic. That, that it's really what happened... In the first century. Well, in order to do that... Because the Bible is... Literally... More than a thousand times... More proven to be more authentic... And I'll explain that a little bit in a minute... Than any other ancient piece of literature we have. So to throw out the Bible... By that same standard, we would have to throw out every ancient text that we know about. We would have to throw out every ancient history that we know about because they're all less authenticated than the Bible is. And here's what I mean by that. We authenticate ancient literature with three tests. All ancient literature, whether it's the Bible or not. Three tests. The first test is from the date of the original writing... How long is it until the first copy that survives? How much time has elapsed before the first copy? The second test is, how many copies do you have? And the third test is, what are the variations? Are there any variants in the copies? And answering those three questions will test the authenticity of any piece of ancient literature. Without getting into all the details, although if you want all the details, you can go April 5th, uh, last year, 2015, I, I went into details. So you can go, if, if you're re- really interested in the details, that'd be a great resource for you. April 5th, 2015, on our website, you can, you can see it. What I'm saying is, literally, the Bible, by those three tests, are it, it's thousands of times more authentic or proven to be more authentic than any other piece of literature that we have i'm not saying those other pieces are not authentic i'm saying the bible has proven itself a thousand times more reliable than that based on the information that we have so you just have to know that that's just science that's just evidence that's just archaeology hey here's an example Within a hundred years of when the Bible was written and the New Testament was all written in the first century, within a hundred years of the original writing, and there's no originals of any ancient literature because of what they wrote on, disintegrated, but within a hundred years, we can find fragments of this Bible, the New Testament, and they exactly match, besides the language, exactly what we have in our Bibles today. That's the proof that I'm talking about, about the authenticity of Scripture. You can take that to the bank. Now, believing what's said, as far as do you believe the stuff's in there, that's another, that's another question. But knowing that that's what was actually said in the first century, that can be proven. So you just have to kind of have that squared away in your mind. The interesting thing about asking who is Jesus... Is that during Jesus' ministry, his followers asked this same question. Astoundingly, uh, one of his followers, John the Baptist, asked this question, and today I'm gonna look at that a little bit. What's interesting about that is Jesus was born in the first century, he was raised in relative obscurity. And then for three years, he did public ministry in Palestine or Israel. Just three years, three brief years, and then he was crucified. So that's kind of the timeline. Well, when his public ministry started, it was John the Baptist, who's actually a cousin to Jesus um, but on, on Jesus' mother's side. but. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, even though he's saying, I shouldn't be baptizing you. you should be." And Jesus says, no, just, just go with it here. And so John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. That kind of inaugurates the three years of public ministry that Jesus has. And so this guy was kind of on the inside track. I mean, he was one of the earliest followers of Jesus, this even before the disciples. I mean, he's there at the very beginning. He sees some amazing stuff that's been recorded for us. But then something happened after Jesus' ministry began. He kept on preaching in the desert. People came out to hear him and, and he kind of got sideways with Herod, talking about Herod was doing something wrong. He was married to his he had taken his brother's wife as his wife. And John actually preached against that. Herod threw him in jail. And then shortly after he's in jail, he was actually beheaded. But before that happened, he's in jail. And he's launched Christ's ministry. He knows Jesus is the Messiah. He knows the Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. He knows when the Messiah comes, everything's going to change. And But he's in jail. He's rotting away in a dungeon. He's hearing because he can have visitors. He's hearing what's happening with the ministry of Jesus. And it's just not computing with him. He's just, he's just kind of like... I don't really get it. This is not the way I pictured it. This is not the way I would do it if I was Jesus. And so he asked a friend, some friends of his, go ask Jesus this question. Are you the one or is there another? Are, Are you the Messiah or is it someone else? That's recorded for us by Matthew. And here's the way he talks about it. It's in Matthew uh, chapter 11, this is a Disciple Matthew, beginning in verse 2. Now, when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, The question, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Kind of a weird way to end it, right? I mean, the whole answer is a little bit different because we would expect him to say, John, don't you remember? Think about what what happened. You know, recall what instead he says, hey, just tell John what you see in here. He says, hey, this is happening, these broken people are healed, and and all that healing, and then he ends that with, blessed are those who aren't offended by me. This is weird, because a lot of times, in our minds, we don't think of Jesus as being offensive, but he was. For example, how how many of you here have ever offended somebody? Raise your hand. And by the way, husbands, uh, little clue. Uh, yeah, if you've ever offended somebody, and say, in in that offense, how many of you have ever need to make you've needed to make an apology to somebody? It's kind of weird because in both services, there's a lot more offenders than apologizers, but that should be about the same. But you know, so yeah. Here's the thing, Jesus offended people all the time he never apologized because he was right guys don't use that it's uh, not your, that won't work for you so don't go there but he was constantly offending people and and you have to remind people of that because what people do is they make up their own Jesus in their mind and the Jesus in their mind is really nice He's like Mr. Rogers. He says really nice affirming things to people all the time. That's not the real Jesus. That's what I'm telling you. John noticed that Jesus isn't doing everything that he expected him to do. And he's disappointed. He's discouraged. He's disillusioned. He's confused. But he got something right. He asked the right question. And not only did he ask the right question, he asked the question in the right way. And I say that because there's a lot of people that ask the question in the wrong way. A great example of that is during the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was crucified between two other men. And they, they were both described as thieves in the Bible. And one of the crucified men next to Jesus, Jesus was in the middle, says, Jesus, today, remember me in paradise. And Jesus says, I will. That's going to happen. But the other thief approached Jesus a different way. And he, he said this. It's kind of a question, but it's kind of a demand. He said, if you're the one, if you're who you say you are, then get us down from here. And what you have there is sort of like a, it's kind of like a question, but it's really, it's a demand wrapped in a question. And a lot of times, that's what people do today. They they come searching for God, and if things are going badly in their lives, they throw out statements like this. God, if you exist then do this in my life. God, if you exist, then do this, and then I'll know, and and I'll follow you. But oddly enough, that doesn't ever seem seem to happen. Um, Because basically what they're doing, if you could follow me with this, what they're, usually what they're saying, asking God to do in their life is very, very, very important to them. And it's almost like one way of looking at it, I think a lot of times, is they're asking God to fix something in their life that basically amounts to what their life is wrapped around. It's sort of like asking the God of the universe, their creator, to fix this idol in their life that they've been worshiping already. Does that make sense? Sometimes I'll illustrate it this way. Um, the Christian life is kind of like this wheel. Uh, the spokes represent, they represent all the different things that we get into in life. I mean, there's a spoke for your friends, there's a spoke for your work, your hobbies, you know, your kids, relationships, family, you know, all this stuff and our lives get intertwined with all these things. But in every life, something is at the center. Whatever's more, most important to you, what you live for. For some people, it's work or success. Everything revolves around that. Or looking the way they're supposed to look, the image. Everything revolves around that. Or it could be family, it could be anything, it could be good stuff. Whatever's in there, that's what your life revolves around. What I'm saying is, a lot of times when people are trying to figure out God, they'll say, this gets messed up. Something bad happens to this. Say, a guy that is all about success has a setback at work. And and it's serious. Maybe he loses his job and he says, God, if you're God, fix that. But what what you're asking God to do is make another idol in your life. And, And here's the thing. We, I, we talk about apologetics. Apologetics is a fancy word that, that means talking about the defense of Christianity and the Bible uh, through uh, rational thinking. So that's apologetics. And we love apologetics. So a lot of times we'll talk about science or, or anything else to talk about the truth of what the word of God says or anything. And, and I love apologetics. I may love apologetics too much. Because I just like interacting that way. But here's what happens. Sometimes you'll be talking to a person about maybe it's the existence of God or who Jesus is. And, and, you'll, and you'll give evidence and evidence and evidence. And then they'll kind of, before they'll assent that, that okay, you got me. They'll just switch to another question, and you'll give evidence. And then they'll switch to another question, and you'll give evidence. Then they'll go look some stuff up online, and they'll switch to another question. And then pretty soon, it's just one question. And even though you're answering the questions, it just never seems to satisfy. Anybody talk to somebody like that? You know, it happens quite a bit. I think here's what's going on there. When that continues and continues, and some, some of you could do that literally for years. There's something else going on. What I believe is happening most of the time, because it's the same thing that happened to us. At some point, it becomes less about the evidence and more about what you want to be true. So, when we're talking about God is real and that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, those are some Pretty heavy-duty statements. But you can't ponder that very long before you realize if this is your life, all of a sudden you go from theoretical and you go from apologetics, and all of a sudden you start getting personal. You get personal because, and we've all come to this point, if you're a believer, you've done this, where at some point you're considering it, but then it gets personal because you realize if this is true, it has major implications on my life. What I'm saying is if this is true that Jesus is God and he's creator and he's the king then actually I know he belongs here in the center of my life. I don't know that if I want I don't know that I want God there. And so now all of a sudden it becomes less about the evidence and much more about whether you want whatever you want to be true. It's less about the evidence and it's more about I don't really deep down want that to be true because the implication is I should be serving God, following God. That's the problem. And so if you're here and you're kind of wrestling with that, that that's, I just want to make you aware of, of there's a, a kind of a deeper issue that may be affecting how you approach this topic. So if you're here as a skeptic, first we're glad that you're here. But I just want to alert you to the fact that sometimes if you need evidence, get the evidence. But as you keep piling up evidence and you keep searching for other chinks in the armor, and and you pile up more and more evidence and you get all those questions asked, if, you're, if that's where you're at and you've been doing this for a long time and you keep getting answers to where you don't even go back to those questions anymore, maybe it's it's not a problem with the evidence. Maybe the problem is that you don't want it to be true because of the implications that it has on your life. Does that make sense? Well... If the most important question is who is Jesus, well then logically our next challenge is discovering the answer. So who did Jesus claim to be and who does the Bible say that he is? And I've already basically mentioned that. And we see this several times because sometimes you'll hear people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus did claim to be God. In John 10.30 he said, I and the Father are one. And some people might push back and say, Okay, well, that's not exactly a slam dunk that he's saying he's God. If he says, I and my father are one, I could say me and my wife are one. No, it is because he was, this all happened in a context. He's talking to some Jewish people, some Jewish leaders. They know exactly what he means by that, and we can see that from his reaction. Because here's the reaction three verses later. They, they start wanting to stone him. And here's what they say, we are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You see, when Jesus said, I and my father are one, they knew you're saying you're God and they're stoning him. Now, when they said that to Jesus, Jesus could have said, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Oh, is that the way you took that? Well, no wonder you're so, no. No. No, Jesus didn't deny it. Jesus took that. That's not the only time that happened, by the way. In John 8, 58, he's confronted by some other religious leaders. And and here's what happens there. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But if if you know a, a little more about the Bible, you'll discover that when Jesus says, I am... I am is actually the personal name of God that God revealed to Moses. Yahweh means I am. So when Jesus says, they kind of talk to him, you're not greater than Abraham. And then he responds to them and says, before Abraham was, before Abraham even existed, I am. And they understood that he was saying he was pre-incarnate God when he's saying that. He existed before Abraham. And again, how do we know that's what he is saying? Because the people who are right there hearing him in his own language react violently. Again, they pick up stones to stone him. Why? Because they recognize that he's using the Old Testament personal name of God, and that would be blasphemy, saying he's God. So they react that way. You have all the disciples Thomas, remember, he was kind of the doubting guy. What did he say? He said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't correct him, he he accepts that. The Apostle Paul describes Jesus as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, who walked with Jesus for three years, says the same thing, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus is our God. And then, Jesus is saying, he's the only way to God. And this is a verse a lot of people have heard before. John 14, 6, where Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, when Jesus says this, what he's saying is every other... By the way, this was offensive then... And this statement that Jesus says is offensive today. Because what he's saying is every religion that's not based on us coming to the Father through Jesus, and that is the only way, is false religion. So that offends people now, and it offended people then. What Jesus said was often offensive. You just have to know that. Now, what's interesting is how Jesus answers John when John asked the question from prison. Because he could have answered in a different way. Hey, remember, remember, like I was saying. But instead he says, go and report what you hear and see. Why does Jesus answer this way? Why does Jesus say, hey, well, here's what you tell John. Just tell him everything that you've seen happening here and, and what you hear me saying. Go tell him. And, and then he talks about, hey, you're seeing all these, all these healing miracles. But then, remember how he ends it? Blessed is he who, who doesn't take offense. What's offensive about that? Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. What's offensive about miracles? Everybody likes miracles. Everybody likes healing. You like it if you're watching it. You like it if you're healed. I mean, it's a party. I mean, everybody's liking that. What What's so offensive? Well, he healed people physically to prove That he was from God so that people would listen to what he was saying. And what he was saying was offensive. Does that make sense? Healing's not offensive. We're all good with that. It was what he was saying. That's what offended people. Because he was making exclusive claims about himself and God. And that's offensive today. Here's what's offensive. When we share the gospel with somebody, and gospel is just, it just literally means, that's a Greek word that means good news. When we share the good news with other people, what we mean, Christians, when we say there's good news about what Jesus did. It's good news, but it's also incredibly offensive. Because before you understand it to be good news... You have to embrace the offensive news. And here it is. The Bible teaches us that God created us. And he created us with a special gift, unlike any other animal, that we were in the image of God. And he created us with freedom because we had to have freedom for us to love God back. And that's what God wanted. So he created us with freedom so we could love him back. We could love others too. But we use that freedom to rebel against God, to do things our own way, uh, to do life the way we wanted to do life, to not follow God. And that's where sin comes from. And that sin is wrongdoing, doing what God says is wrong. What God is, and Jesus is telling us. By the way, talk about offensive. Jesus talked about hell in the New Testament more than anybody else. Hell. Well, what's hell? Well. What the gospel is telling us, what the the good news, the story of the Bible is, the whole Bible is this in a nutshell. God created us. He gave us the free will to love him back. We didn't do that. We rebelled and we did our own thing. God gave us the Ten Commandments so we would know what's right and wrong and we didn't do that either. We couldn't even do that. We weren't good enough to do that. And then there was the whole sacrificial system that was all like, okay, because you've done these offenses to God, that's really serious. And so you need to sacrifice this innocent animal, this innocent perfect animal, a perfect lamb or perfect bull, perfect goat. You need to slit its throat, drain its blood. I mean, it, it, and you have to keep doing that because this only covers very temporarily. Next year, you got to do it again and again and again. And the blood's just flowing all the time. And for all these different offenses or all these different sacrifices and the blood just flow and flow and flow. And whether it's in the tabernacle in the desert or when they built a the temple, blood's flowing all the time to remind the people how serious their sin was in the face of a holy and righteous God. But all that was pointing to the Messiah that would come, the whole Old Testament. And Jesus Christ would come as John introduced him, the Lamb of God. The Messiah, the one that's going to make everything right. Well, what needs to be made right? What's well, this? Here's the offensive part. Jesus is telling us that all of us are so sinful, so wrong, that the right punishment for our wrongs is an eternity separated from God in a place called hell he's saying and because, and the reason that's offensive is people think well yeah i'm not perfect i'm but i'm a pretty good person jesus is saying you're not perfect and you're not a pretty good person you're a, a terrible person you've done terrible things however you want to phrase it you have done terrible things You've sinned against a holy and righteous, infinite God who is your creator. You've rebelled and sinned against him. But that's offensive because people think, I haven't done anything that deserves that kind of punishment forever in hell away from God. Can't work my way out of it. I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And Jesus says, yes, you are. All of us are. It's offensive. And the problem is we always underestimate our rebellion, our sin, our wrongdoing in the face of a perfect God. And if you're kind of sitting here right now and thinking, wow, I can't really think of when I've sinned lately. Let me help you with that. (laughs) There's something in the Bible called the Ten Commandments, the standard of righteousness. Remember what what they were? I'll, I'll do it in reverse order. First, Don't covet. Don't ever want anything that somebody else wants. Somebody else has, I mean. Don't ever want anything somebody else has. Don't ever tell a lie or twist the truth for your advantage or deceive. Don't ever steal. Don't ever take anything that doesn't belong ever, not once. Don't commit adultery and don't even think about it in your heart. Ever. Don't murder anybody or even hate somebody in your heart ever. Honor your mother and father 24-7 all the time they're alive on this earth. Always keep one day in seven as separate and holy to God. Never ever take the Lord's name in vain. Don't ever worship anything else besides God and number one is God should be first in your life every minute of every day for your entire life. How do you think we're doing now? We're not doing good. And it's not just that we've sinned and rebelled. We've sinned against a perfect, infinite God. And because of that, the right punishment for our sin against a perfect, righteous, infinite God is an infinite time in hell separated from him. That's the offensive part. The good news is that God allowed his only son, Jesus Christ, at a point in history 2,000 years ago to come to this earth and clothe himself in humanity, born in an obscure stable to poor parents, raised in obscurity, and then began a brief public ministry for three years where he taught us what was right and he taught us about God and eventually at the end of that he voluntarily allowed his creation to torture him to death in payment for our sins once and for all. Everything changed. But the only way we get that applied to our life is when we place our trust or our belief In Jesus and what he did. And he throws the door open. It's the most inclusive religion in the world in this sense. Anybody can come. Anybody can respond. He he invites all to have a relationship with him based on faith. If you'll just come. If you'll just believe. If you'll just trust in Christ alone. That's what faith is. One of my favorite uh, authors is C.S. Lewis, and one of my favorite quotes that some of you already know. This is one of my favorite quotes. I want to read to you because, basically, besides asking the question and finding an answer, it's deciding on a response. Here's the way he puts it, talking about people who kind of have their own view of Jesus. Here's what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him, talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who is merely a, a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of, with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher." He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. That's a great way, said more eloquently than I can say, that if you have a make-believe Jesus, that you think he was a great moral teacher, but he really has no, no authority in your life, he's... That's not the real Jesus, and he can't help you. The real Jesus is the judge. People like it when Jesus says, hey, don't judge, and pull the log out of your own eye before you do that, and love everybody. People like that, and that's part of Jesus' teaching. But they hated it and still do when Jesus says, I'm the only way. And by the way, Jesus is the judge of the universe, and so the question is: Is will you come to Him? And here's what I'm asking: As you try to figure this out, and hopefully, hopefully, if you're a, a skeptic, we want you to come. We want you to hear the evidence. We want you to come back. But we also want us all to do this with intellectual integrity. That we realize, hey. It's one way or the other. You only have like three, three choices here when it comes to Jesus. It's crazy, didn't know what he was doing. He's evil, lied, or he is who he said he is. And if you're ready even right now to accept Jesus, put your faith in him, and maybe you've never done that before. If that's true of you, you can do that anytime. You could do it now. You don't even have to do it in a church. It's not about church. It's about Jesus. You just have to turn to him in faith, and I, and I would recommend when you do that, that you call out to Christ, asking him forgiveness and telling him that you're putting your, your trust in Jesus and who he is and what he did, and that's all you got. Nothing else, no good deeds that you've done in your life, that doesn't erase not even one bad thing you've done. That's what you're supposed to do. That's the middle line. If you're ready to do that, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. You don't have to say it out loud. And you can put it into your own words silently. God knows your every thought. God knows your every sin. God knows your every rebellion. God knows everything about you. you. You may be sitting here going, I am the worst person in here. I don't belong here. You don't know what I've done. If you knew who I was, you'd kick me out. You're the person that Jesus most often talks about who he came to seek and to save. He loves you. No matter who you are and no matter what you've done. Let's all bow our heads. Let me lead you in this prayer. Again, make this prayer your prayer if you're ready to place your trust in Christ. And it's placing your trust in Christ that makes you a believer. Father in heaven, I I get it, Lord, that uh, you know me, you created me, you love me. And that I've rebelled against you like everyone else. Personally, I've done that. God, I'm asking for you to forgive me and I'm putting my trust, my faith, my belief in Jesus, who he is, son of God, and what he did, died on the cross in payment of my sins. I'm putting my trust in Jesus, who he is, and what he did, and my trust in nothing else. God, come into my life and help me to live it your way. In Christ's name, amen. And while our heads are bowed, if I could just ask the question, this is just for us not intending to embarrass anybody. Won't do that. We'll we'll not call you down here to do anything else you don't want to do. If you'll just pop your hand up and down so I can see. If you prayed that prayer, as far as you know, the first time you've trusted in Christ alone, it just allows us to pray for you. Not by name. Could be anonymous. I just want to pop your hand up and back down. That's all I'm asking you to do. We'll start on the Smith Road side here, your left. Anybody pray that prayer for the first time today? Just put your hand up. Let me see it so I can pray for you. And then put it back down, just up. Put it up where I can see you. Nobody else looking around? I see you right there and right there. Thanks. And then I see you right over here, thank you. And then across the aisle, same thing on your right. If you you prayed that prayer today, just between you and God, if you raise your hand, we'll know to pray for you. Thank you, I see you right there see you back there. See you. Anyone else? Just pop it up so I can see you right back down. Let's all stand together. God's been good today. Uh, no matter who you are, we hope that you come back uh, for Sunday number two in our series. I think you'll enjoy it. Hope to see you then. Have a great Sunday. You're dismissed.